Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli. It's uh, Tuesday, the 15th of March. I'm here as usual with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare and a very special guest back on the podcast for the first time in I don't know how long it's been, um, four or five years. But anyway, far, far, far too long. Uh, Ashley Frawley, who's senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at Swansea University, uh, an editor and founding member of Sublation Press, which is uh, the team formerly behind Zero Books. Uh, hello, Ashley. Very good Hi. for you to join us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, well, uh, two main subjects, and then we'll see how we go. Um, I think we're being kind of, I'm going to say fashionably unnewsworthy in that we're going to start talking about the Canadian truckers um, and COVID and COVID restrictions, which of course has been uh, blown away by the war in Ukraine. Um, that's not too unfortunate phrasing. Um, so we're going to be discussing that and Ashley's recent article in Unheard, um, looking at the Indigenous question in Canada and how that relates to the Freedom Convoy there. There's been actually a lot of discussion on the podcast about this. There's been a disagreement, I guess, between us a little bit to a certain extent on this. Um, and also a uh, lot of our listeners disagreed with our takes on this, uh, which we responded to in our most recent episode, which came out last week, Alpha Bonus Bonus, um, which is for subscribers only. And if you're interested in that listener, that's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Um, but Ashley is Canadian um, and she uh, is part of the Ojibwe tribe. I'm going to actually stop describing things and ask you to just um, tell me a little bit of your kind of biographical background and what your relationship is uh, to some of the organizers. Because I think if I understood correctly, you have some family or some relatives who uh, were involved in it, but also some who were against it. Yeah, it caused an enormous rift in my family. And it was a rift along kind of, <clears throat> kind of interesting lines because it's usually my dad and I who agree on most things and my brother and I that don't. Um, so my, my brother is a pipeline technician, I, I think, um, he listens to a lot of my podcasts and stuff. So he's probably thinking, no, you got that totally wrong, but basically I think he <laughs> x-rays, he x-rays pipelines or something like that. Um, and, um, yeah, he, so he's quite working class. He works kind of short-term contracts and is kind of in, in fairly insecure work. And, um, it's, you know, he has this whole idea that he's totally bought into that socialism is just this horrible thing that wants to control your life and control everything that you do and um he sees me um academic blue hair uh <laughs> socialist avowed mark no I'm, I'm not a socialist but avowed marxist uh communist and he's like oh you're part of the problem and what's interesting is that i through this convoy and his support for it and his participation in it we actually for the first time started to see eye to eye because I was sort of we were just talking and arguing and and, and listening to each other and um he was surprised that I understood what he was talking about that I understood that like his frustration at all of these rules and controls that had wreaked havoc on his life um, whereas my dad totally no nope, not at all <laughs> and it, it was like I mean like we had real like throw down debates um, and uh, like I was I was being rude to my father <laughs> uh, and we would like hang up on each other and stuff so I feel like that whole the whole debate that I had in my family was something like the rifts that were happening all across Canada where it was like you know even in my broader family like kids were not talking to their parents 
like public publicly falling out over it. It was a hum- it was enormously divisive, enormously divisive. It sounds and, yeah, especially it's... with my family where we're indigenous. Um, and my dad is indigenous. Um, my dad's Ojibwe, and you know his his siblings. Some of his siblings were involved, and some were like vehemently opposed. And this caused again big big problems. But, but I felt the need to understand what was going on and to talk to people and you know, my dad couldn't even understand why I would want to do that. It does sound a bit like the Canadian version of, of Brexit, kind of dividing families, realignment across uh, or, or kind of newfound allies with uh, different different members or different parts of the family. Um, but yeah, so would you say more generally it's kind of been extremely, um, you know, divisive within the wider kind of Canadian population? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, It's been divisive amongst leftists (laughs) um, uh, across different kinds of social classes. Now, I can't I can only speak from my own experience and I'm in the UK, so I don't know what it would have been like amongst like friend friend groups and stuff like that. Um, But I know from just speaking to other people who were involved, um, you know, they had friends that were they've been friends with for like 20 years that just totally fell out with them. Um, And it was just like constructed as so obviously bad so obviously neo-nazi you know pictures of people with nazi uh flags and and like confederate flags and stuff and and so it was like well obviously these are like this is like the january 6th thing but for canada and i probably would have just believed that and been kind of passive if it had not been for the fact that i knew that my brother was involved and my aunt's uh my aunt and uncle and some other family members were involved and I know they're not going to be walking around with Nazi, <laughs> Nazi flags and stuff. No chance. Um, and so I, I then decided to look a little bit deeper and kind of talk to them about what was going on. And, you know, I was really conflicted still um, because as I talked to them, I saw I realized that their understanding of what was going on was basically like a, you know, a conspiracy with like anti-Semitic undertones, even though they would never, ever, ever. It, when I when I pointed it out to them, they were horrified at that. Um, you, but could it, you just yeah. explain like what the content of the conspiracy theory was, Ashley? So the World Economic Forum conspiracy, basically, that um, their society was just fine. And then these evil people have this master plan and they're leading us away from it so that they can fully control things and so on. And uh, and I, my heart absolutely sank as soon as my aunt started saying this stuff. But it took like maybe, you know, who else was listening to her problems? Who else was listening to my brother? Who else is listening to people who felt trapped and needed a narrative to make sense of what was going on? Nobody. It didn't take me very long to kind of say like, yeah, I mean, they're, these people are real, but they're not leading us away from a perfectly functioning society. They are trying to make sense of processes already happening. Mm. You know, they're trying to guide a deep. It's not, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a conspiracy. It's a crisis. It's an economic crisis. Um, and they are just trying to make sense of and harmonize this in a way that doesn't seem so bad. You know, hey, th- these trends are happening, and you'll own nothing, and you'll be happy. It's actually fine. Don't worry about it. So, but I had to then explain, like, look, it's not that without these people, society would be just fine. There's a deeper process going on. And if we want to take control of the future, we need to figure out another way to do things um, that is democratic and 
um, or else these people will have too much of a say. <laughs> I tried to kind of meld our two narratives. And they never actually talked to somebody before that took them seriously and didn't mm-hmm. write them off and call them stupid. Out of curiosity, did they had they previously expressed kind of, I don't know, some sort of conspiratorial narratives or frameworks in reference to other questions? Or is this like this, maybe you were horrified by it because this is the first time these family members had ever expressed sort of this sort of uh, view of the world. Is that? Yeah, it was the first time and I was really surprised. Um, My brother's a bit of an autodidact. Um, I think he, I think he finished high school. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe by correspondence or something like that, but he's a smart, he's a smart guy. And so I was a little bit horrified by that. Um, but I could kind of recognize why he would go horrified down. by your brother being self-educated. No, no, sorry, horrified <laughs> by the yeah. Uh... <laughs> so I'm not careful sometimes when I'm talking. Um, no, I was horrified by the fact that he would get sucked in by a conspiracy theory. But it's a kind of funny generational thing because I I often think of that idea that uh, for example, there's a recent like poll. Um, in the U.S. where, you know, a significant uh, minority said they believe Russia is communist or socialist, right? Yeah. Um, but I often think of that as like, you know, boomer ideology, but, <laughs> you know, like it, it's basically older people who have still this kind of notion and who were raised in the Cold War and so on, and who might understand um, things like, for example, the state management of COVID or mismanagement of COVID um, and all the restrictions imposed as socialist or communist. But it's Mm -hmm. weird, I think, I'm always struck if I ever hear someone of a younger generation, you know, very much post-Cold War, uh, millennial or or Generation Z or even younger Generation X, um, kind of spouting that kind of stuff. Because I don't know why, though, why? Like, I don't know why anyone would be surprised by this, right? Given the legacy, I mean, people aren't stupid, right? You don't have to be an expert in history. Um, to know that the legacy of the 20th century is a dismal one, right? And you don't need to know the ins and outs of what happened in 1923 um, and, you know, what happened in factional battles among the Bolsheviks and cancel No, 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 not all that. No, but my point is, no, I know, but my point is, right, that I don't think it's surprising that the overwhelming historical impression even to people who aren't necessarily familiar with the detailed history, is that socialism is a reign of um, despotism and state coercion. Yeah, sure. No, no, I, I, I totally I totally get that. What I guess what I'm drawing attention to, especially in the context in which um, younger generations, I mean, this is polling in the US, not in Canada, but um, that it's younger generations who express positive views of socialism. Of course, you know, this is polling and whatever, but it's there's a strong generational um, tendency there in terms of like, whether you know, whether you see socialism as positive. Of course, socialism there probably just means healthcare, right? Yeah, but, I was going to say, but, it depends but, but, on what you mean by socialism. Of course, but we know that these terms are kind of fluid and, and fluctuating and, and um, attach themselves to different objects. But nevertheless, you know, if they if the term used for totalitarian control is socialism, right, it's also interesting that people have a positive view of social, younger generations have a positive view of socialism at the same time. That's that's what I'm just drawing attention to that generationally that plays out in a in a in a distinct fashion. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's actually kind of disturbing um, because I I think also younger generations are, are completely alienated from the concept of freedom. And the idea yeah. that communism is meant to be about freedom of the individual. You know, when I think about communism and socialism, I don't think about the, the things that people 
uh, charge Marxists with that we're all about coercion and so on. I think that's a slander. Um, the idea that you would take that seriously and kind of avow that is very, very scary. For me, it's like um, Oscar Wilde, you know, soul of man under socialism. That The great thing mm. about socialism is that it frees us from the, having to live for other people. <laughs> um, I, I, what? So I think this idea that... Um, that the younger generation is tends to be pro-socialism. I think you'd have to really, you'd need to do some qualitative studies to figure out exactly what that means to people. It's just anecdotally. I remember I went to a conference once and there was this really keen student there, this young, young woman. And uh, she was talking about, uh, about how she can't understand. We had a conversation about free speech and, and she was like, well, why, why then do you need, to be able to say things in your house like that you wouldn't say out on the street. And I was like, well, people, you know, <laughs> you know, they they Jesus test Christ. out ideas and so on. And she was like, well, why would anybody need to do that? Like, why would anybody, I don't understand why, why, you know, they couldn't, could not even understand why in the privacy of your own home, you should have freedom of speech. And at, at the end of this discussion, as I was trying to explain to her these things, she she proudly identified to the group of people we were talking to, she said, well, I'm a Marxist. And I was so embarrassed by that, that this is what Marxism yeah. has become associated with, which is completely antithetical to what um, you know, Marx was writing about. Um, but this is this slander against socialism and communism is now proudly avowed that it's about control and putting the collective before the individual. I mean, that's, that's supposed to be that you buy socializing the means of production you just don't think about it anymore and therefore you are now free to be an individual it's not that oh individualism is bad and we we suppress freedoms for the betterment of the community you're starting to go down a really bad path when you start thinking of socialism in that way yeah i kind of have a i don't know if it's it's not even a particularly hot take but the um <clears throat> yeah the kind of understanding of marxism is often it's like the opposite the opposite of bourgeois society so all of these things freedom of speech is a good example like you you kind of want the opposite of that but actually the major <clears throat> goal for marxists today is to defend all of these limited achievements of bourgeois society like freedom of speech democracy all of these things which are like very limited in contemporary society uh, they're limited not because they're bad they're limited because the full the full realization of them can't happen under the current sort of um society we have so okay. yeah marxists for bourgeois rights that's my <laughs> for the sublation of bourgeois rights yeah exactly yeah sublation good 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 word as, as we were saying <laughs> earlier yeah nice plug there ashley yeah <laughs> um you, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago about this, um, while the convoy, the Freedom Convoy was going on, you were pretty uh, downbeat, I guess, about some of the framings that were expressed there. Um, but I guess, you know, in the whole, I mean, I wonder, firstly, were you kind of supportive of the Freedom Convoy? Um, we've debated this recently on the show. Um, and I mean, I, we sort of didn't entirely agree between the three of us. Um, I have about... to say that what Ashley described about how the Freedom Convoy has been, um, uh, how it has been absorbed into Canadian society at large, it seems to confirm what basically what I was saying um, in our disagreement. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Alex. I'm this afraid, must be uh... the first time that's ever happened. Ah, you know, it's strange. Yeah, there you go. It's happened actually more than once, but there you go. Well, I mean, for listeners, I think there was a debate about whether, uh, or we debated whether 
the demand for freedom in and of itself um, is is worthwhile. I, I think that's worth inquiring to further. I think it's good that the banner of freedom is raised, but um, I don't think it's completely self-evident. Um, and secondly, Phil raised the question that, or raised the point that the freedom convoy's independence from existing political parties makes them more interesting, more worthy of support than various other labor struggles in North America, which some listeners came back to us saying, well, you know, you should be talking about and supporting the Kellogg strike or the Amazon unionization drive and it's far more interesting than yeah, the freedom convoys about. It was also the fact that they immobilized the national capital and thus had yeah. a political impact that is far in excess of, say, you know, kind of a vote to unionize um, a regional branch of Starbucks in the US. Exactly. And the other thing I'd add is to what Ashley said. I mean, you know, the fact, I, there's no avoiding the fact that if something sparks the public consciousness in this particular way, but also that it's so viscerally divisive, then... You know, you can kind of um, point to, um, you know, you can point to worthy organizing struggles as much as you like, but there's no getting away from the fact that you have a live political issue that is dividing the country, dividing public opinion, and that requires a response. And it doesn't seem to me mm. that simply kind of invoking um, worthy kind of more worthy labor struggles answers the question of what, how do you, you know, how do you uh, assess and evaluate a particular a particular political moment in the national context. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, we've we've just been uh, recapitulating our own debate. So, <laughs> what what what, are you, what is your take on this? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people on the left were disappointed that demands and grievances were not framed in terms that were easily recognizable from labor struggles. So it wasn't about higher wages. They, they were like, oh, I just wish that they would say something about higher wages or, you know, but it was about material conditions, you know, material conditions of, yeah. of work, you know, and truckers are not subject to more surveillance just now. This is just the straw that broke that camel's back because they had been, uh, they've been subject to increasing levels of surveillance for, for several years where they're, they've got um, front uh, driver facing cameras in their cabs, um, they even have limited control sometimes over the actual working of their of their truck, um, where it it will um, they have oh, I can't remember what they're called um, but these devices in the trucks that you know limit their ability to make judgments about how fast they're going and stuff like that. Um, and for a lot of these people, they live inside their trucks, and so it's like a full control over every aspect of their lives. So it doesn't surprise me that their demands took the form of a demand for freedom. And I actually think that it's a good thing because, I mean, other if you had framed it in terms of, of wages or something like that, that's easily incorporated. Mm. The demand for self-determination is bigger. And it's a bigger demand that I don't think society in general at the moment is capable of incorporating easily. Um, and it's the one kind of battleground where I think these fights are going to be fought a, a bit more frequently. Um, because what does that mean? It means that we want to have a say in how we, not just, not just in how we do our, our work and our jobs, but how we live our lives and how we make decisions. And I think over time, the idea that the working class and, and the masses in general should have their hands on the machinery of the economy on on, on on major political questions has really been subject to um, a lot of skepticism. 
And I think that's a question that we really shouldn't back down from. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're always, and we're, and we're more and more being asked to back down from this. Like, oh, well, maybe you don't have the expertise to really weigh in on this. Oh, you know, did, did people really know what they were voting for? Well, yeah, yeah, we did. Okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, we can make the choice about how we live our lives. Um, so, and they're trying to constantly say, well, no, 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 it's an emergency. It's an emergency. Now, now you can't, now you can't decide. Well, there's always going to be an emergency that says why we can't decide. I think self-determination is probably the big demand now. So there was um, yeah. I, there was another aspect of this which was raised in um, back and forth with our listeners actually, which was the fact that a lot of these truckers are um, supposed owner operators, and yeah. so this changes. You know, they're not straightforwardly wage earners who don't have any access to property of their own, um, and that this you know kind of um, was a further reason to, if not dismiss, then at least qualify um, one's approach or support for the truckers' protests. What did you make of that? Yeah, again, questions that we're going to have to think about because the nature of work itself is changing. Okay, so if they're owner-operators, then Uber drivers are petty bourgeois. Yeah, because, yeah. Because that's what's going on here. It's not that they're like, oh, they're their own boss and they've got all this freedom. They are promised this hope of being your own boss because who wants to be, who wants to live under the man anyway? Um, and so if you're a good driver, you get the uh, opportunity to buy your own truck. Uh, and uh, basically, it's the companies offloading their overhead costs onto the worker. Um, in addition, they get people to enter into these exploitative contracts where they provide this training and then get people to work only for that particular company for a certain number of years there's all sorts of underhanded stuff going on, but the, the analogy is more Uber than small shopkeeper. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I entirely agree with that. And I agree with um, the argument that it's a really key central question that needs to be dealt with, I think, in terms of work and in terms of organizing, because the um, tendency really is, I think, yeah, that there's that uh, workers are sold this ideal of freedom um, of a sort of sort of, you know, uh, self-management and self-employment, which um, turns out to be very hollow. I guess it's interesting then that that um, plays out in reaction to the COVID restrictions. Um, mm. I, don't, I mean, I don't know exactly what, know what to, to make of that. I'm totally supportive of, um, yeah, I was supportive of the Freedom Convoy insofar as, you know, um, they were demanding what you say they were demanding. I'm interested though, because you were so seemingly disheartened with, um, some of the conspiratorial frames and some of the rest of the stuff um, mm-hmm. and the idea that they were saw this as socialist or communist and a whole big plot, how yeah. you kind of square those uh, those two things. I mean, is it that you're just you think that there's a rational kernel there which needs to be supported despite these other elements? Or um, do you think that one element, one side of it, the, the positive side of it, in your view, prevailed over the other aspects? Well, um, I don't know. I for me, I needed to understand what was going on. That was the main thing is that I didn't, I wasn't under any illusions that this was like revolution or something like that. But for me, it was an interesting development that needed to be understood um, to figure out, well, what, how do we move forward? What, what are people trying to understand going on in their own lives and what kinds of discontents are people expressing um, and how are people responding to that? That, that for me was what was interesting. I think no one was listening to very real grievances 
they just completely dismiss them. Oh, you're petty bourgeois. Oh, you you want to be left alone. How dare you? Um, that Oh, isn't that a bit libertarian? Um, and so who gave voice to those grievances? Lunatics, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame because, you know, they just through engaging with the world, um, they figured out something wasn't quite right. Um, that there appeared to be like I was just talking to just talking to people when I was sort of writing about it I, I interviewed as many people as I could and they were talking about like how automation was um seemed to cause problems in society not just loss of jobs but other kinds of problems and I was surprised by that because I was like oh shoot wow you've kind of like hit on <laughs> a, a very deep contradiction within capitalism just from like coming up against problems in your life and trying to work through them um, and it's not hard then to kind of give that shape and explain what's going on. But nobody's doing that. I, I just found that really shocking that there's this real grievance here and there's this desire for self-determination, which is a spark of a desire for, for like freedom and a belief in the masses to take control of society which I think and, is really progressive. Yeah. And yet it was just kind of written off and, and not just written off, but like really savagely attacked. And I and, think that was a big mistake. Well, I think just to, to go back to the point about the kind of <clears throat> the, the, the controls or, or very kind of punitive measures being, being seen as socialist. It, I mean, <laughs> the, who were the people who kind of tried to delegitimize by calling it fascist? Um, the, you know any sort of popular uprising and this being another example it's the quote unquote socialists so it's mm -hmm. it is like if this if this kind of demand for taking control and for self-determination is um kind of uh instinctively rejected by people who describe themselves as socialists it's you know this is presumably you know one of the core propositions of the kind of an older idea of socialism it's all about kind of taking control of society you know why would you be surprised that that kind of people understand um the the their opponents um truckers understand their opponents as, as socialists it seems like that's that would be the well yeah they call they themselves had. socialists and what scares me is like actually some of the things that are happening um some of these attempts to make sense of contradictions within capitalism and kind of harmonize them are done by people who consider themselves socialists you know, so um, this idea of, uh, well, I mean, even just like COVID restrictions and so uh, and all of these sorts of things, th this was um, who was like, per, you know, championing all of this stuff. It was avowed socialists. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if people who are like, well, I don't know, like Naomi Klein, does she identify as a socialist? I don't know, but she's one of these people yeah, who are know. like, <laughs> like the, the face of the left in Canada. Obviously, you know, they don't believe in, in material advancement and making your life better. No, you got to make sacrifices to maintain the status quo. I mean, to avoid catastrophe. And, yeah. and you know, so of course, obviously. And, and also, I think like a lot of what's um, what's going on or what might happen as a result of this. I think that there's like a deep economic crisis within capitalism that's being kind of naturalized through through covid and through um, other kinds of emergencies and crises um these superficially what like these developments superficially um reflect 
um, socialism, like, or, or like um, post-capitalism. So if you think about like the state withering away and becoming administration, I mean, that's what the state is becoming. It's no longer like this big state that's capable of moving around, or at least less and less is capable of moving around enormous amounts of resources. It's now administration of everyday life, but in a horrible dystopian world. Yeah. And if you're stupid, you might think, hey, that's socialism. <laughs> um, and so I think like a lot of people looking just at the surface may actually mistake these trends like UBI, for example, as like a socialist development. And I mean, how would you fight against many, that? You'd, you'd wind up being anti-socialist. But many, but I mean, many people who support it, like, again, like you say, I mean, actively, um, you know, actively socialists support UBI on those grounds, you know, and you can make, I mean, you know, you have the most extraordinary um, kind of radical experiment recently conducted in America's cities, which is, if not the abolition of the police, you know, the attempt to get the police to wither away by choking off its funding mm. in certain kind of um, Democrat controlled municipal districts. And there you have an, so it's this remarkable kind of, um, you know, uh, attempt to basically choke off the the forces of um, of state power and law and order in a context in which you don't have the conditions for that. And yet it's kind of being enacted directly by the radical by the radical left as it currently exists. And so it it is a remarkable um, it's a remarkable kind of set of contradictions, I think. Um, the other thing yeah, I want to address... We have, and just, just jump, like, we have capitalism without the police. I mean, it, it seems like a utopian demand. Of course, as we know, it's um, it's a dystopian one. But capitalism without the police exists. It exists on, in kind of peripheral countries around the world, you know, as a friend right, of the Brazil. podcast, Ben Fogel. But, but yeah, but, <laughs> but, yeah, but as Ben Fogel, uh, you know, friend of the podcast, uh, has it said it's actually South Africa is the best example of that. And I think it's, it's absolutely correct. So, yeah, you know, that is, it, you can see the dystopia like it actually really exists. It's not something that has to be, you know, oh, we have to really reimagine and open the imagination. We can have, you know, effectively uh, abolish the police without any significant um, material change. It's like, yeah, no, that exists. That really exists. We have a model of what that looks like and it's terrible. <laughs> it's not there good. Is, there, is, want... there is one, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ashley. Oh, I was just going to say um, that what scares me the most about what's happening at the moment is that there's not really any movement that's capable of kind of mocking some of this stuff. So when you had, you know, the socialism of fools, you had socialism and communism proper that mocked it, mm, yeah. um, that pointed out like this is their materialism was zoological materialism, like, as Trotsky said. Um, and it, now that doesn't exist. So what scares me is that we are coming to a point where, um, I mean, it looks like, it's just Carl Schmidt across the political spectrum. And that's, it's either you're going to fall down a right-wing version or a left-wing version, but there's no like proper communist movement or socialist movement or, or progressive movement of any kind that is capable of, uh, that believes in universalism, that believes in self-determination, human rationality, the I think it's worse. I think it's worse than that to some degree, because I think um, Schmidt for all his faults, at least he understood um, the nature of state power and the and justified the state in respect of the need for co providing political cohesion against the fragmentation of civil society, where it seems to me that the contemporary liberal and left understanding along the lines we've been saying is, you know, even kind of um, sub Schmidt in as much as that it, um, you know, is obviously totally reliant on state power and coercive power, but not in the sense 
of providing any political cohesion for civil society. Mm. Rather, it becomes the kind of the state that simply fragments along with the pluralism of civil society itself. And that is, um, you know, endorsed by effectively endorsed by the left. And that is the kind of the road of of neoliberal paramilitarization, of neoliberal warlordism and of the kind of um, capitalism without the police, as, as Ben Fogel would put it. Um, there is one thing I wanted to put to you, actually, which was raised by um, a polit Canadian political scientist here in the UK, um, Eric Kaufman, who was writing about the truckers in the Daily Telegraph, the national, our conservative um, national daily here in the UK. And he said the thing that really, that really kind of deranged Canadian liberals and the middle classes about the truckers was that they, they took the Canadian flag away from them. So the flag, which was kind of always understood by Canada's liberal middle classes as the flag of multi multiracial, um, multicultural utopia of kind of soft, progressive um, values of politesse, of all of the kind of um, all of the things that Canada stands for was taken away from them by these kind of plebeian, crude, blue collar working class people, essentially. And this is the thing which they really couldn't bear about the truckers beyond any of the you know, disagreements about vaccinations and what have you. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Um, but what's interesting is that the, <clears throat> the multicultural utopia and the multiracial utopia that that flag stands for, it has become about the celebration of difference and then the quick loss of everything and subsumption of everything into an obsession with difference. Um, whereas when I was talking to people from the Freedom Convoy, they were really keen to talk about how diverse the movement was and yet how they all wanted the same thing. And I think that's, I think that's a really important value mm -hmm. that, that's really gone now. This idea that you could come from all these different backgrounds and we all want the same thing. There was this woman, I didn't get to talk to her, unfortunately, but I watched a lot of interviews with her. She she went to, there's a few people that went in full regalia. So like, I think she was wearing a jingle dress and um, uh, she was from up north, a reserve up north. And she went on a few, she, she did a few interviews and she was really interesting because she was so keen, even though she went in this like symbol, symbolism of, of cultural difference, how keen she was to stress that they all wanted the same thing, that they all wanted freedom and self-determination. And self-determination is something that's been an indigenous value and demand for a really long time, but has been subordinated to all kinds of different things like, oh, well, you know, when you're better able to find your, you know, to self-regulate and find mental health and seek well-being, and then maybe at the end of the day, self-determination can be realized somehow, some way. It's always this thing, down, down, down at the end of a long list of all of our rehabilitation that needs to happen, which is all psychological and so on. And then self-determination somewhere down at the bottom. But we're we're weak and 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 broken subjects. So of course self-determination is not something you would want. And yet she was saying, no, I I want to have control over my life and my body and what I what I decide I'm going to do with it. And um and there wasn't a she didn't even mention that that was an indigenous demand. She just saw it as something that was shared with other people. And I feel like that is so important and so dangerous because <laughs> divide and conquer has been the order of the day for a really long time. Just get lost in a million different identities and explaining how special you are. And, and then you had these people that were 
subsuming their identity into something bigger, which is, I thought was new and interesting. Yeah, I mean, and that sort of uh, paternalism or tutelage, it's always been, I think, the argument uh, against self-determination when it isn't expressed kind of full-throatedly. It's always been, yeah, well, kick it down the road because you you need to be made ready. And I mean, this was made yeah. against national liberation movements in Africa and post-colonialism and so on, right? That these uh, that they had to be under tutelage of the of the colonial powers until they would be ready to to govern themselves. Um, and this, it, it's really interesting what you write in your unheard piece on this because there's this whole section of it dedicated to, I guess, the indigenous question. And it's, I'm not familiar with it at all, really, or what those debates are and have been like in Canada. But um, so maybe one, be interesting to hear a little bit more about that history, but also an argument that you make that um, encouraging victimhood has been a, a major way in which indigenous people are spoken about and spoken to, um, and that it ends up in this uh it's standing in contradiction to self-determination. And in a nice line you have in it is the call for self-determination fades into self-management and the therapeutic empowerment of outside agencies. So I'd be interested to, to kind of hear you a little, elaborate a little bit on that and how that also fits into the COVID management because they don't seem self-evidently to, to kind of be part of a whole. So, yeah. Well, it's understandable because victimhood is how you get attention. So anytime that you want to call attention to a grievance, the only time you get the ear of the government is when you're telling some atrocity, atrocity tale. And that's it. That's all anybody wants to hear. Or they, they want to hear two things, an atrocity tale or like magical spirit creature, like tree hugger or something like that. There's just these cliches that go around and nobody wants to hear any, anything else. And so, okay, you want to get attention, you, you do a ritual and you play your drums and you tell some horror story from residential schools. And what winds up happening is these atrocity tales are articulated and these tales of great suffering and um, intergenerational suffering. So it just goes on and on and on and on. And you're just born with this like original sin. Um, this gets articulated on the same stage as the demand for self-determination. But you've just said, how damaged you are and how unable you are to self-manage. So not only can you not self-determine in your own communities, you can't really manage yourself. You can't manage your families. And they like the thing that really bothers me. And I wrote a paper, published a paper about this journal article um, about two years ago about this. Um, I went to a, um, I went to a conference when I first finished my PhD in I, I think it's 2012, 2013, something like that. And uh, for um, First Nations information governance. And it was basically this conference about how indigenous people are so sick and tired of being studied and not knowing where the data was going and not knowing if it was having any benefit to indigenous people. And they were saying, well, we need to have a say in what information is collected about us. And uh, we need to have more of a say just generally in what the heck's going on in our communities. And there are all these presentations at this conference. And, and it was just amazing to watch each and every one of them talk about how to get around that. <laughs> <laughs> how to, They were just so convinced that the problem was how damaged we were. Well, we, we have to get in and intervene because otherwise they'll be unhealthy and they won't be able to raise their children and so on. And it just it struck me that it was the exact same narrative that had been floating around for hundreds of years. The indigenous mother is not capable of raising the good liberal citizen. And 
really that's the problem here that's the reason why um there are any kind of social problems oh it's got to be the parents it's got to be the parents but it but it was communicated in this really like deferential um fawning kind of way like oh we're so very sorry due to the legacy of colonialism the sacred role of the mother has been undermined in indigenous communities and therefore mothers are not able to parent and that's the reason why we have social problems in indigenous communities because of bad parenting but don't worry it's our fault this time we recognize that mm. no i really i thought it was poverty because these are the same kinds of problems that most people in poverty saw uh, 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 face and weren't able to solve um, and and the distance of communities from mainstream freedoms and rights and and infrastructure, just like basic stuff. Like some communities don't even have running water. You're telling me like we need psychologists? It, it it really really bugged me. And so this 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 is what winds up happening, right? This this narrative has become so ingrained that the reason why we have problems is due to the legacy of colonialism. You can look nowhere else, and that's the only story that ever gets told is this story about victimhood yeah, and i guess um, the continuity yeah. there that you're saying about with 100 years of history is that you know mothers aren't able to raise good christians presumably that was the you know approach 200 300 years ago and now it's you can't raise the good liberal citizen yeah and they would and that was the rationale why they took took children away in the first place why there was the 60s scoop and so on the failure of the indigenous mother to live up to the stereotype of the the mother and the pearls and heels and so on um but you know about the whole thing with the um there's only two stories that you want to hear this this whole thing really came to a head recently um where there was a, a, a day of reconciliation so they had found allegedly some uh evidence that there were burials outside of a school in Kamloops now apparently that was uh later found to be kind of shaky in terms of evidence um but that didn't stop like i mean they they, it was ground penetrating radar or something like that that they had done to find these or maybe i've got that wrong but to find these these graves and it was it could have been all sorts of other things but that was kind of swept under the rug and it just became this huge outpouring of emotion in canadian society where we're all everybody's supposed to say how sorry they are for everything that happened and um this uh my sister's work my sister told me not to tell this story but i i can't help it it's a very good story they wanted to do this thing where they were like oh on this day of reconciliation we have hey well we've got these indigenous people that work for us let's talk to them so they send this journalist in to my sister and uh they're like oh you know tell us what this day means to you and my sister got the idea almost immediately what she wanted she wanted some kind of atrocity tale she wanted, you know, you tell me how bad it is for you. And I was just like, you know, that's not really my experience. Um, <laughs> I didn't live on reserve, um, but we went to res- the reserve in the summers and we got family there. And it's always been a pretty good time for me. It's like, and so she's very, very nervous as this woman just keeps prodding her and prodding her. So she tells this story about how we went swimming once on an island on the reserve. And as we were walking to the place where we were supposed to go swimming, she accidentally stepped on a, on a bee's nest. And um, she didn't realize that she'd stepped on a bee's nest. So she doesn't understand why all these bees are stinging her. And so she keeps stomping her feet. And as she stomps her feet, more bees come out. <laughs> They're all getting caught in her hair and she's getting stung and she's running around getting stung by bees. And we all made, we all thought this was hilarious. And we, we said, hey, Tamara, your Indian name is, uh, is Dances with Bees. 
and we, we called her Dances with Bees. Anyway, so she tells this story because she's so embarrassed and awkward. And then my sister sent me the article and she's like, Ashley, I don't know what to do. And the article comes through and it's like, they call me Dances with Bees. <laughs> I recall when I was young walking through the forests of the reserves <laughs> when I stepped upon a bee's nest. And, and then, at, you know, at the end of the story, my grandmother had put sap because one of the trees, um, if you put the sap from one of the trees, it, it re- reduces the swelling. <laughs> it was like my grandmother, who was a great medicine woman. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> put the sap from the trees. And I was dying laughing. I was absolutely dying. That was the funniest thing in the world. But it was, you know, I feel bad for the journalist because she was trying her best. Right. But she only knew two stories. One atrocity to spirit elf like (laughs) and that and that was that was it basically she had no sense that like you could have a sense of humor that you could make fun of pop culture and like make fun of Indian names and stuff like that and also and also take it seriously um but yeah that's that's it that's all people want to hear and so this idea you know that's why I found it interesting the, the fact that there were a lot of indigenous people that were involved in the freedom convoy it was just transgressing this narrative that we only care about our issues and right. that's what the 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 reserve said too. They a- actively discouraged anyone from participating, and any ceremonial objects, any spiritual, uh, any any um, ceremonies, any fires, uh, no permission was given because it was like this is not our fight. We yeah. are we are yeah. only concerned about our issues. You're needed in your communities, and we're actively discouraged from banding together with other people. And I think actually a lot of the things that we go through are the same as other people in society and we can make a lot more progress by recognizing that these things are shared and have shared histories and it's not that we are imprisoned by some special trauma but that's the narrative that we're always invited to embody or else no one else will listen Hmm. i mean hearing you talk about this reminds me of a a line of richard tucks that the the state is the armed wing of oxfam and it's like (laughs) which is a good line. I think it's just like, this is the way that social problems are are constructed. And this is the kind of interaction that the state combined with, you know, civil society wants to have with the, you know, with the, with people who suffer these social problems. And it's, you know, that, that dynamic um, that you described of kind of, you know, these are the two uh, acceptable stories. And, you know, if the trauma is not, not bad enough, if it's just a bee's, uh, be a nest then you need to kind of bring in some of the the mystical stuff to to add to it as well it's like yeah i mean this is this there is a there is a kind of a whole what what do you call it like charity industrial complex of like the you know i guess essentially reproducing um a certain frame for social problems like reproducing you know this is this this is the these are the people who have to play the victim role and these are the kind of the people who can come in and and through through being you know given money by the state they can empower people to to solve their own problems but not actually empower them in you know too much and and make them want self-determination but it just it just seemed like that's a fit like the way you're describing it um yeah that's exactly it especially the idea of empowerment because it's basically you take a, a mainstream social policy and you empower indigenous people to implement in their implement it in their own communities mm. that's it it's not like um some, and and the idea that people, the subjects of these, the objects of these policies, that they would reject that is really viewed with disdain. Don't you see I'm trying to help you? You know, yeah. and it, like that you are rejecting 
this charity and rejecting but that's the that's the kind of position that you're invited to embody that you're supposed to be like grateful for this oversight and this care and that there are these caring people and there are these victims but very few people actually I mean I would say it's like a split the people who are are happy to kind of embody that and the people who reject it it's important Mm. yeah I mean it's important for to be the object of of politics and not not the subject I mean all that that's this this kind of frame like you can um, except, you know, if you buy into this, this kind of the way this model is reproduced, you can, you know, get some material resources. But if you want to become the subject of politics and start demanding like self-determination, power, control, then this is, you know, this isn't playing by the, uh, by this, by this game and you'll have some, you know, you'll, you'll cause problems. Mm-hmm. So, so this actually maybe provides some of the answer to a question that I wanted to ask. Because uh, I thought just for the last bit of this, we'd talk a little bit about emotionalism. And uh, obviously, this is something that you've worked on a lot, Ashley. Last time you were on, I think we talked about happiness. Mm. Um, it sounds, <laughs> you know, there's no way to say that. I like, you always joke about this as well. Like, you can't, it's hard to say that without just sounding ridiculous, you know, like, oh, we're just talking about happiness. And um, what are you doing to be happy? Um, <laughs> but uh, so, we, this is an issue, obviously, we've discussed, uh, and just for listeners to point out to other episodes that you might want to chase up. But we've discussed this most recently at the end of last year in our reading club, where we discussed Eva loses cold intimacies um and also in a big way of course in our 29 series kalibunga on the californian ideology which uh, questions of mental health and well-being um were discussed as being instrumental instrumentalized by by capitalist institutions mm-hmm. um and in that like so in, in an interesting lecture which um which you gave which we'll link to in the show notes if uh, listeners want to chase that up you note that there's these sort of these questions of happiness mental health well-being and i'm sure you can add some others go through these cycles of like novelty and decay. So, you know, they, um, they come up in the media, they become an object of social policy, and then they're kind of dropped and, and there's not that much interest in it. And that's kind of seems to happen irrespective of whether there's some political or social critique of those things or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I guess I'm tempted to, you know, playing devil's advocate a bit to just conclude, look, this is just media and social policy froth. Like what's the actual political import of this? If these, um, kind of trendy concerns with emotionalism just seem to ebb and flow, right? And don't necessarily become fully institutionalized. Well, they do become institutionalized, which is why they get dropped. So it doesn't matter. You don't have to be actively involved in claims making for mental health anymore, except to get, you know, to keep funding for your initiatives. And once it's already institutionalized and is being tracked by policy, you you don't necessarily have to like keep it on the front page. Um, but yeah, generally I, I get what you're saying. Um, so what's the political importance of it? Well, it's why, why do these things keep coming up? Um, and I think that why is it so powerful to describe the problems of society in terms of emotions and to solve them in terms of emotions and, in, and what does that emotional narrative actually say? Well, that emotional narrative is a statement about subjectivity, about who we are as human beings, about human nature, about what we're capable of doing. And I think what happened was we're continually faced with these wicked issues, issues that are very deep and difficult to solve. At the same time, we have a political context in, in which people have to solve these issues. I mean, that's why that's how you get into office. And so there's an appetite for simple solutions to complex problems, for magic bullets, 
like the self-esteem movement promised that it was going to be a social vaccine. It was going to, you know, prevent problems before they start. That if you feel good about yourself, you're not going to do drugs and you're not going to get pregnant when you're too young and all these sorts of things um, were promised to be solved by inculcating self-esteem. And of course, these problems weren't solved, first of all, because they've been misconceptualized in the first place. But um, and also just because, you know, you don't have any quality in society because people don't feel the right way about themselves. There's a deeper structure going on. But we have this is it. This is the end of history. We can't really do anything about these things. And so that framework fades away. But there's always something waiting in the wings, a new magic bullet that promises to solve these problems. Mm. And what winds up happening is in each one of these waves, what, what the narrative is saying, they're, you know, they're trying to solve real problems. They're trying to explain real issues in the world, but they are not able to do so in anything, in any way beyond some kind of deficit within the human being. Yeah. And so what winds up happening is when each one fails, we don't question whether or not it was the narrative that's failed. Maybe we failed to understand. Maybe there's something else going on. We question human subjectivity even more. Gosh, people are so messed up, much more messed up than we realized. Completely unfixable. <laughs> yeah, and we become more and more pessimistic about the ability to solve social problems and about the ability of human beings to solve those problems and about and about human subjectivity. And you can see this, like I didn't, when I started out writing this book, I didn't realize that that's what was going on. The original book was much different than what it wound up being. But as I moved through each of these kind of signifiers that were coming up, this like, um, you know, I, I looked at self-esteem and then I went back through happiness and well-being and mindfulness. And then I started to look at, at mental health. And what I found was that the magic bullet stuff started to fall away. Um, it's still there a little bit in mindfulness. But John Kabat-Zinn, for example, the, the guru of the mindfulness movement said, you know, the, the ultimate goal of mindfulness is to feel at home in the maelstrom. Mm. And it's to kind of like sit back and, and watch things from a position of peace. And so it's it's almost like this false, you know, the self-esteem movement, at least it said, I will give you riches. <laughs> you know, at least I'm going to solve problems. Mm. And now you can see this kind of pessimism where it's like, well, no, we're not really, it's not going to solve problems. It's not a magic bullet. Well, yeah. you know, at least there was like even it was wrong, but at least there was this hope that it would do that. Now they don't even promise that. And the mental yeah. health movement is the same. They don't promise that by making mentally healthy young people, they're going to be more successful. No, it's like um, the world is so bad and so out of their control. But why does that matter? Because of how it makes you feel and the damage that it has on the subject. And that's it. That's the end of it. It's like the the hands of the subject on history are completely erased it's all out of our control and and i think i don't i don't lay the the causal power for that on the discourses i think the discourse is expressing that gradual loss of faith in the ability of the human subject to rationally understand and control history the control the forces of history i think Every time that we fail to solve problems, the persistence of the problems tells us that they can't be solved, as opposed to telling us we need to think more deeply, we need mm. to rethink our frameworks, we need to rethink Tina, maybe. Yeah, no, that's very well put. Um, I think just to maybe bring us back around and maybe bring us back to where we started, because um, it just occurred to me, that, I mean, this idea that, that it's 
that both the media discussion and the social policy initiatives and its institutionalization, it's obviously an attempt to reshape the subject from top down instead of a belief that you can reshape society. And I, I think to bring it back to the discussion that we started with is that there, the sort of anti-socialism of, uh, of certain kind of populist movements, right? Um, that the identification of social control with socialism and therefore, and, and that applies to COVID and to other things, um, is an identification of socialism with social engineering in a sense. Yeah. And it's, the, and but social engineering, actually, you know, I'm in favor of social engineering, but, you know, in terms of re-engineering society, mm-hmm. not re-engineering the subject. And I think there's maybe a sense of, uh, uh, maybe I mean this is a question you know whether in in you know, for example in your brother's um account of of things whether that anti-socialism is a rejection of that form of social engineering of, of, of attempt to reshape the subject and sort of instead of changing society or you know and this is the question whether that resistance to social engineering really is just no I don't want things to change I want you know I or it's a nostalgia for for a for a lost past that's oh, an interesting I, point. I are you like ganging up on, on Ashley's brother, Alex? Why are you like <laughs> being no. mean to Ashley's brother? No, just she, she raised the example. We're just using that as an example. I'm sorry to Ashley's brother. Uh, I don't think he has any nostalgia for the past, um, but I do know that some of the people that I talked to did um, because I don't think there was ever any time in his life that was particularly, particularly good that he'd like to look back on. Um, but um, I, I I can understand, yeah, um, I didn't think of it this way, but it's possible that some of the rejection of socialism is a rejection of this social engineering. And I, and I can kind of recognize it too, because for myself, my own education was something like um, taking me away from everything that I knew and telling me how bad it was and how wrong it was. And, and that was, and if I had stopped there, I would have turned against you know, people like my brother and other family members and so on and thought, oh, you've misunderstood everything. You've got it all wrong. And the real problem is that you're too consumerist and you blah, 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 whatever. I might've, you know, got mad at him for drinking too much or smoking or whatever. And then over time, you know, as I carried on my education and began to rethink things, it was almost like a coming home where I realized that a lot of the aspirations that I had and the um, anger that I had about um, certain injustices in my own life. And, you know, that, that actually I was right. <laughs> I was right. To, um, that I, I shouldn't have felt bad about smoking because, hey, my life was pretty crap. And, you know, smoking was one of the only little joys that I had. You know, to I was being asked to live on only so much as my betters wanted me to. <laughs> and, I, I, and I can see that, well, you know, my brother never... Um, got the opportunity to go and travel like I did and go and get an education. And he's still in that world of like, I remember my mom's boyfriend, also very kind of working class guy. I remember him standing in the kitchen and he's like, come home from work. He's working in like, he works for a mining company um, doing some kind of labor. I don't know, but he's all covered in dirt. (laughs) He's holding a sausage in one hand. He's got a cigarette in the other hand. And he's like, you know, I work all day for the man. And when I come home, the man is there waiting to take the sausage out of my hand and the cigarette out of my mouth. <laughs> and that's that's what it's like, right? And who does the man identify as? You know, 
a socialist here for your better, you know, for I'm here for your well-being. Actually, I don't know if the man would identify as a socialist. I'm being a bit silly, but I can understand that that's how it would be perceived, right? That there's this yeah. group in society that claims to want, you know, good things for you, but is actually about making sure that you never live on more than what is serviceable to the status quo. You know, don't get too sick because that's expensive. Uh, and don't exercise, you know, don't drink too much because that can cause social disorder and don't do this and don't do that. And your life is just more and more controlled. Um, so I can understand that. But about the whole about the social engineering, thing, I'm just thinking out loud. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But um, about the social engineering thing, I think that's what's what's happened. And it's an interesting thing because um, it's an inversion of an older form of thinking about social problems called the social pathology approach which interestingly led to, or um, a big part of it was eugenics. And basically it says, you know, society, it's old form of sociology, beginning of the 20th century. It says society or end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century. Society is a, a functioning organism. Anybody who studied A-level sociology, you know what I'm talking about. It's a functioning organism and um, any kind of social problem is a pathological outgrowth on this otherwise healthy body. And it can be taken very literally that actually these people are somehow, they are pathological, they cause social problems because they're, there's something wrong with them inside of them, they're inferior in some way. And they would actually use like, very derogatory language in social sociology textbooks about like idiots and inbreds and stuff like that. And this is what causes social problems. And of course, this all um became very uh beyond the pale after the 1930s and 1940s um this idea that problems are caused by something pathological within the individual and you had like the new left kind of put forward a, a patho pathological civilization narrative where actually it's society that's sick and it infects the individual and at least with the social pathology approach they were kind of optimistic <laughs> thought like that um, they thought at least like well you know there's some progress to be had from the pathological civilization approach there's a lot of pessimism where it's like well the societal kind of malaise is spreading and and they're they were not particularly optimistic about the ability of stopping it but the end result interestingly is very similar the only solution is to go in and try and like prop up individuals. So the kind version of social pathology wasn't eugenics, it was like a moral education. And the kind version of the pathological civilization is a moral education. You know, an educate, you go into school, that's the only solution. You go in, you gotta prop up individuals in some way, or you have some kind of like therapeutic thing, but it tends to be very individualized, but kind of um, shoring up individuals to the problems of this pathological society. It's the same kind of it's the same kind of thing. And what we've lost is this ability to think about um, to think about human beings not as like the end goal of some kind of sickness or the end result of some kind of sickness, like as though, you know, the reason why we have social problems is because individuals are ill and unable to control themselves. Or the reason why we have social problems is because society makes people ill and unable to control themselves. We need to be able to think more deeply about the contradictions that are deep within capitalism that lead to social problems. And in that way, hopefully as rational human subjects, a capacity that all human beings have, 
take control of those issues and solve them in a future that may be radically different than the one we have now. All right. That was, uh, that was great. I was hoping you'd finish on a, like, you know, one of those notes and that was perfect. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it was a little long winded. No, 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 no. That was, that was, that was, that was great. Um, and there's a lot um, to think about there. It'd be great if you'd come on again very soon again. Um, also, especially once the, the book is done. Um, so we yeah, can I mean, the, it's the, one of well. the, the first chapter of my 2015 book, basically lays out the argument that I just gave you if anyone is interested in figuring out what I meant to say there. No, very the good. We'll, 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 link, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So uh, listeners can chase that up if they're interested. But uh, yeah, that's it for now. Thank you very much, Ashley. This has been great. Um, and let's do this again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.